0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tjasza Zaitz. Electronic health records and digital data gathering has now been around long enough that the focus has shifted from just gathering to using the data for research, AI development and building clinical decision support systems. Various companies are trying to create solutions to help clinicians navigate care, workflows and have the right information in front of them at the right time to make decisions faster without losing time with searches through the whole patient's record. This is the fourth episode in the series about healthcare data management in the US. In the first episode, we heard how Commodore Health collects data about various encounters people have with healthcare.
1: In the US,
2: we have a system called HIPAA, which allows companies to de-identify data, depersonalize it. So we keep privacy in mind. And through that process, allow us to look at populations at scale. The good thing about that is it creates the ability for us to de-identify and study population trends. The challenge, though, is that the same patient may show up in one provider system and then may have a a telehealth visit in another system. Maybe they get their lab work done in yet another system. And so that individual is now in three different systems.
0: In the second episode, we learned about Epic Cosmos, a research environment consisting of clinical data from electronic medical records of 178 million patients.
2: The research that you're doing has to be producing generalizable medical knowledge. So it, as long as it, so it's is it fitting the spirit of that, that's what the rules of the road and the charter do. So for example, you can't compare hospital A and hospital B and say that one has worse quality. That's not allowed. That's not what we're doing with this. But it's generalizable knowledge is being produced, which means it should be in the public domain. It should be accessible to a large group of people, not just a single individual that can make medical decisions and learnings from it.
0: The third episode explored how Palantir Foundry helps healthcare enterprises, regulatory agencies and governments optimize their workforce planning and crisis response through an open data approach and experience from other industries.
2: We help our hospital customers more efficiently and effectively schedule their clinical staff, their nurses, in accordance with demand, that is, patient census and associated factors, length of stay. As it turns out, there are many similarities to the way in which we help our airline customers schedule their planes.
0: Today, you'll hear a panel discussion recorded at HLTH last year, in which four industry experts shared their experience with building solutions on top of EHRs. Challenges related to connecting to electronic healthcare records data and needs for better interoperability APIs to really enable data to be used for accelerated health outcomes improvement. You will hear from Kathy Dalton-Ford, Chief Product and Strategy Officer at Project Ronin, Josh Rubel, Chief Commercial Officer for MD Clone, David Luro, CEO of Medicomp Systems, And Greg Miller, CGO of Lumion. Enjoy the discussion and do subscribe to the podcast to be notified about new episodes automatically. This whole healthcare data series will be summarized in our monthly newsletter, so do check that out at fodh.substack.com and subscribe to get the summary directly in your inbox. Now let's begin with today's discussion. We're going to discuss a little bit what's possible to do with healthcare data in the U.S. and how different companies are just using the data to improve healthcare processes, insights into patient care, and consequently improve the patient and clinician experience and patient outcomes. So if we start with a brief discussion, I would kindly ask each of you to describe which part of data management your companies are focused on, and we'll go from there. My name is
3: Kathy Ford. I'm the Chief Product and Strategy Officer at Project Ronin. We are a clinical decision support uh, solution that is focused in oncology care. And where we fit in the data ecosystem is we ingest data from multiple sources, and we clean it, correlate it, organize it, and then make it way smarter. Our mission and vision is to bring more precise information at the patient-specific level so that clinicians can make much better decisions about treatments faster. That's a big
0: element in cancer care. Okay. Greg Miller, you're next.
1: So I'm Greg Miller. I'm the chief growth officer for Lumion. And at Lumion, we fundamentally believe that care better orchestrated is care better delivered. And so when it comes to data management, Lumion is really, think of it as a system of action. The Lumion platform is a agility layer on top of source systems. So the natural inclination is EHRs, but we integrate with anything from devices to departmental systems to the EHRs. And so similar to what Kathy was saying is we ingest the data in real time and we automate the task activities and workflow associated with delivering care um, or really orchestrating care. So really, it's an automation layer on top of existing data sources. We don't create new data unless it is patient-reported outcomes or patient-reported information, things like what medications they're on. And so we create a synthetic record um, that combines both what is known about the patient in whatever number of source systems may be, and then we augment that with information that we gather from the patients themselves, could be from the care teams themselves, both pre and post a follow-up.
0: Okay. David.
4: Thank you. It's great to be here. I'm Dave LaRoe, the CEO of MediCom Systems. Our goal is to make certain that a clinician can see all the information related to a specific diagnosis instantly at the point of care with one click or one voice command. We've been building this for about 44 years by speaking to clinicians and saying, when you're thinking about a specific condition like congestive heart failure or Diabetes, what are the symptoms, history, physical exam, test diagnosis, therapies, complications, sequela, et cetera, that you would want to know about, see, hear about, document about, ask the patient about, and take action on. So we are very much focused almost exclusively on the use of data at the point of care. To do that, we've had to map SNOMED, LOINC, RXNORM, ICD, CPT, DSM, other things, About 1.6 million mappings between those vocabularies and code sets, because they're not going away, to our clinical relevancy engine, which allows somebody to say, go through all of that information and show me what's relevant. I'm thinking about this condition. So it's very much point of care oriented. Other people store the data, other people protect the data, other people do very specialized things with the data in specialties like oncology care. We're trying to be a more general layer for. What do you want to see right now and then move on to the next patient? Because we believe that the population health analytics are very important, but you really improve outcomes a single patient at a time. So we try to make that happen.
0: Josh, your turn. Great.
2: It's fun to follow the three of you, and it's exciting to have a healthcare data conversation. I'm Josh Rubell and the chief commercial officer at MD Clone. MDClone is focused really in the research, performance improvement, outcomes analysis and assessment space related to healthcare data. All of the health systems, healthcare providers, all the various parts of our healthcare economy, there's a ton of data that gets generated and ultimately collected as part of providing care to patients. The value of real world evidence, the value of that data gets collected. Unfortunately today, underutilized. Part of the problem is associated with that data complexity. So of all that data, harmonizing it, making sure someone like me, who's not a data analyst, can ask questions of it. That's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is if I want to get an insight, but it's not my patient, I've got to deal with the privacy challenges associated with the sacrosanct relationship between the health system and the patient. There's not a lot of room for a third party in that conversation. So our business seeks to simplify the data complexity insanity that's out there using platform capability. And then we layer synthetic output. So when you ask a question of that data, we give you an answer leveraging synthetic cohorts, either precision or data lake level, that allows anyone to access that data to go find that insight because there's no more patient information in it. It's entirely composed of fictional humans.
0: So, so Let's stay with that a little bit. What's the different difference between anonymized and synthetic data.
2: I think Greg and I may have a different definition of synthetic. So I want to make sure we have space for Greg to answer here. The key difference between anonymized and often the term is, that's used is de-identified uh, data is that's taking real data and then scrubbing it of certain portions. So things like zip code or data birth or various elements that may be part of a patient's record that can identify that patient either de novo or in combination with another data set. Unfortunately, when you anonymize, the data you're removing might very well be important to the analysis that you're trying to perform. So the, that's one challenge with anonymizing or de-identifying. The other challenge is, as b- has been proven over and over again, it's never de-identified enough. So the value of synthetic is you create a fictional data set. It's a variant of the original or variant upon the original that has the same, if you do it right, that has the same scientific output, meaning the correlations between the features that you've decided to pull hold up between the synthetic and the original. If you can do that, then you don't have to worry about re-identification. It can't happen. We're creating new patients out of thin
0: air. Do you want to respond?
1: So when I talk about a synthetic record, what I'm really referring to is the corpus of data that is known about a patient versus what is not known about a patient. And so... You take the average Medicare patient, right? An average Medicare patient with one chronic disease sees nine to 14 different providers in a given year. And every provider knows what they do for the patient and that data is in the EHR. But if those other providers are outside of whatever health system or organization, there's data about that person that is unknown. And that is useful for the caring process. At the same time, the patient has their own information. that They may not be telling any of the existing providers that they may see. So combination of other providers, combination with the, or in combination with the patient reported information combined with the EHR data, it creates a synthetic record, if you will, that is the canonical source of truth for that patient, not just what's in the EHR
0: synthetic data or real data, at the end of the day, you still need the actual data to create anything. So EHRs, and there's a common agreement in the industry that it's really difficult to get data out of the EMRs. So Can you reflect a little bit on how are you dealing with this issue? So how are you, who do you go to? Do you go to the vendors to try to connect to the data set? Who's the main driver of you being able to apply your solutions to healthcare systems? This is a real huge problem, in fact. And there have been claims
3: of attempts to try to democratize data, but it really actually is still very limited and really difficult and requires a tremendous amount of build for smaller vendors that are trying to disrupt, and that often is a barrier. And so we're losing out on disruption and forward-thinking advances because of the lack of data that's needed to fuel exactly those technologies. Um, Not to make this a Larry commercial, but I will say that part of the intention for Oracle buying Cerner EMR is exactly to do that. It's the exact opposite strategy of what Epic has been doing and what is still going to be doing. So Epic is moving towards less partners and more organic development. And Cerner, now Oracle Cerner, is moving towards partners, disruption, and opening up the data and making it available to every vendor that is in their partner ecosystem so that they can be as disruptive as possible. Ronan happens to be partner zero to do that, to open up all the infrastructure there. But hopefully that move, and this the world's largest EHR, second largest in the US, is gonna force other vendors to actually get on board with this because it's gonna open up so much more technology. And patient care, efficiencies, cost-benefit improvements, all of the things that are super broken in healthcare, because as has Josh and others have said, the data, we have a lot of data in our country and in other countries, but it's completely disorganized. It's very hard to find. And it often is unclear or and so disorganized that it actually doesn't provide any real clinical value. So it takes companies like Ronin and others to especially for a disease type like cancer, which arguably is the most complex disease out there. There are literally thousands of cancer types trying to figure out exactly how to treat a patient right now. is really difficult. So data and making it smart and safe and using AI is the only way we're going to get there from a scale standpoint.
0: David, you mentioned 44 years in the industry. What's your reflection on the way that the whole digitalization happened in the U.S. and like how you are providing your services?
4: For a long time, still predominantly, the focus has been the health record, the EMR, the chart, whatever it's been through. It went through doctors saying my chart. And then with 21st century cures, oh, yeah, the data really should be accessible to the patient. And then with TEFCA, should be shared by everybody. But the more powerful and entrenched a vendor gets, and there's been a name mentioned of an entrenched vendor, the less likely they are to want to share their data or their information, and the more difficult it is to get the information out. Uh, We, because we are not, we don't keep the data, we don't store the data, we just like to access it and be able to stripe it and diagnostically connect it. We looked at all the vendors and said, from whom can we get the cleanest data and for years, the answer was nobody. But because of 21st century cures, because of Tefka, because of people like Mickey Tripathi pushing interoperability and trying to make it real, we decided we've tried three times over 20 years to get data. We finally, with the open API projects that, that people are doing, we were finally able to layer our diagnostically connected views on top of Cerner's Millennium product. To put it, we didn't, we're scared to death somebody's actually going to buy it because then we'd have to go to a big Cerner site and support it, but we wanted to see if they were saying about making it available through open APIs really worked, and it was excruciating, but they did it. And then they responded to our input to make it much easier so that instead of calling for 100 fire resources to get the data, we could call one and just say, give us all the data on this patient so we can do a longitudinal view of their diabetes. I believe that that sort of approach will very much begin to change the industry because somebody just, what, $28 billion invested to buy Cerner? There's a strong incentive there to show that is going to result in change, not just for customers of Cerner and Oracle and the downstream people, but for the industry. So we're starting to see that. And it's very encouraging to us because we can't operate without it. And I don't believe clinicians can operate without it. We've lived in a long period that what I called, if you wanted to know the information about the patient, you were actually dumpster diving for data. You jumped in and you had no idea what was in there. You just knew you were going to come out dirty, nasty, and disoriented. But now with the move toward more open sharing of data, I think we're going to see a big change in the next five years.
3: So I completely agree with all of that. And and there have been moves for sure, uh, but fire is still very limited and vendors are still restricting data to deliver through the different APIs. And that's where we need to see real change. There should not be such governance from the vendor's perspective uh, that's holding the data in order to enable other applications to deliver better care and solve problems for provider organizations and payer organizations and pharma and others.
0: A lot of progress is happening, and what I'm wondering from your perspective is how do you see that your solutions are changing the workflows in the hospitals? And Josh, perhaps you can um, start. You bet. So access to relevant clinical data
2: Leveraging the hospital's information and then information from other sources around a community. If it's harmonized, you can develop the right sort of population health level workflows. Let me give you an example. If you're Intermountain Healthcare and you're interested in finding patients who have CKD but don't know it yet, so they're on a crash course to an ED, they'll have to be dialyzed and likely enter end-stage renal disease. If Intermountain can simply find patients who have a high probability that perhaps they do have CKD and get in front of, of that ED crash. They're calling the patient in. They bring the, they bring the lab results to the patient based on identification of the potential CKD, and they um, save themselves a lot of money if they're at risk on those patients. But way more importantly, they've just changed the life of someone who would have to go through end-stage renal disease treatment starting next year. Now, perhaps you've given them a decade of seeing weddings and graduations and bar mitzvahs and whatever else grandma or grandpa or mom and dad have a chance to uh, to see, that journey starts with data. Now, the format of it, how it gets used, that's all about activating the staff at a place like Intermountain or uh, many other insight providers that are around the ecosystem to help to get to a predictive model where you can say, okay, that patient likely will develop CKD. That's the story of data in our space. I think the next 10 years, and I loved hearing what David and Kathy, I loved hearing what they had to say around how you instantiate them into workflow. And Greg, what you were describing as well, how to orchestrate it, getting that insight to a care coordinator and to the doc so that when the patient comes in for a sprained ankle, they get that CKD care. That is going to revolutionize what care delivery looks and feels like over the next 15 years. And I think we're at the beginning of it. We're just starting to use the data to really tell this story. That's mm-hmm. exciting.
0: Uh, Greg, perhaps you can uh, continue here, because uh, there's kind of two things that are not exactly the same, but very uh, related. So one is clinical decision support and deciding based on the data and what the doctor is going to do next, and then it's care coordination that you're trying to automate. So can you maybe dive into that a little bit? Sure.
1: Yeah, so and Josh, if I just take the example of the CKD patient, what the Lumion um the Lumion platform is real-time, bi-directional data integration. And so where that becomes really valuable is with the real-time data, we can pick up that a patient may be on the road to CKD, and we will. our algorithms will risk stratify that p- person. And then depending upon where they fit in the risk spectrum, um, high, medium, low, we'll just make it simple, the low-risk patients, there's going to be a certain pathway that patient needs to be going on versus the high-risk patients, which is a totally different pathway. So it's, I think the key in that is many organizations think about care pathways as a one-size-fits-all. The reality is a patient that has CKD and diabetes and asthma and COPD is very different than a patient that has CKD. And so what the Lumion engine is doing is it's leveraging the real-time data, picking up those signals, risk stratifying the patient, and then placing them on whatever the pathway is, and then automating the tasks, activities, and events – To the various people departments supplies anything that is needed to 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 care for that specific patient so at the end of the day what we can do is we can use the real-time data to individualize and personalize the care for every patient that's not something a health system can do on a manual basis like they do today
0: so follow-up question there how do you get like clinicians to trust the recommendations that you do given that every institution has their own pathways, yeah. their own ways of dealing with the patient?
1: Yeah, so a couple of things there, and you just teed up a great question. We have a communities of practice. As part of our best practices, basically think of it that way. What is the best way to get a patient ready for surgery, as an example? And that's just based upon a lot of experience working with existing customers. And every customer says they've got their own medical boards that approve pathways and that type of thing. So we're, we come in and say, hey, look, Based upon our customer experience, here's some of the things they did, but then it ultimately has to be approved by the medical boards of the organization in order to do that. Now, we do have some really cool data from, there's a very large national idea in that I can't mention their name, and it's a pay vidor. And so we have some really cool data about it. when we launched, the first month that we launched, the, we measured the override rate from the doc overriding the recommendation that the algorithms calculated. And so first month, I think the override rate was about 62%. Second month, it was down under 30. And then by the third month, it was, and where we're maintaining now is somewhere around 2.7%. So 96 point something percent of the time, the docs now trust it. And that's, it's just like an autonomous car, right? A self-driving car. You might get in, might be a little worried at first, like might you have your hands around the steering wheel, maybe. But then as you get going and it's working, you trust it. It's that kind of same Thing. Kathy?
3: I'd love to pile onto that. So in, so cancer care is really unique from other chronic diseases because you actually, when you're giving chemotherapy to a patient, they're going to get sick before they get better. And so what is unique about a cancer patient is they're not sure whether that toxicity is expected or not. Should I go to the emergency department because I'm throwing up every day? Should I be sick? You know, is this all part of the plan? And so what Ronan has and does is it's a full patient engagement all the way through clinician workflow, but we're using technology to deliver questions and then uh, related information to help that patient make a better decision. And while they are providing feedback about how they're feeling through the application, we, are, we have a risk index, so we deliver insights around toxicity, around emergency department visits, and then we score the patient in real time. And so a clinician can then look at Ronan and say, based on all the information we have, hundreds of data elements, this patient is X percent at risk of presenting to the ED. And to the question of how, do you, how does a clinician believe it? And our industry, I've been in it for 30 years, it's incredibly risk adverse, very evidence-based. So we follow, really, we're quite bullish around safe AI. And so what we do, unlike most other providers in this space, is we actually show how we came to that conclusion, all the data, and we show our percentage of confidence around the data. And so they clinicians can look at everything that we have run through our algorithms and our math and make a decision at their level of confidence. So we're not trying to tell them, we're trying to inform them so that they can make the best decision. And that's what we have found. We co-developed this with MD Anderson, so by clinicians for clinicians. And so we really needed to make sure we had a way to let clinicians feel the highest level of trust as fast as possible. So by exposing how we got there
0: has been so far successful. Uh, David, can you perhaps build on to that? Are you predominantly working in the acute setting? Because that's quite different compared to oncology.
4: Historically, for the first 25 or so years, up through the late 90s, we were mostly in the ambulatory settings, but now we're moving into the inpatient settings, particularly in Asia, and we're starting to do that here in the United States. But one of the things that was mentioned, I think Kathy mentioned it, and I think... Both of the other folks mentioned it. Is people need to trust this? We've been building. We've been building diagnostic profiles. We now have ten thousand diseases with about a hundred and fifty million links between them, all scored for relevancy. But every place you go into, somebody says, "Wait a minute, we're different. We're busier. We have a different patient mix, et cetera. We're sicker." The f- but, and you tend to think, "Yeah, yeah, yeah I've heard that before." But the my one of my first exposures to that was at a pulmonology practice in Ohio that was in the downwind plume from an aluminum plant. And they wanted to know where somebody lived, the miles from the plant. And for anybody that worked in the plant, because it, caused it you can cause aluminum lung, and this was a pulmonology practice, do you work in the smelting operation? Do you work in the finishing operation? Do you work in the office? We had to add those data points. We're not going to add data points like works in the smelting operation at the Covington, Kentucky, Alcoa plant. We're not going to put that in our database. But we had to make our tool so that people could add their own data points to it, and even in our decision algorithms, so that they could take what we have, tweak them, and customize them and test them before they deployed it. Otherwise, they would say... It might work for everybody else, but we're different, and in a way, they all are, even if the only thing that's different about them is they think they're different. You've got to give them the ability to feel like the system is re- that the system and the data points in it are addressable and responsive to their specific needs.
2: I think that's a great point. I think Kathy, your cancer example, also. I think you've seen one episode and you've seen one episode. And yes, there are standards, but there's a lot more variation than there is standardization. From MD Clone's perspective, our platform is called Adams and it's an acronym for ask, discover, act, measure, and then share. What we're hitting on around data trust is the measure. I agree with David's description of kind of the interesting idiosyncratic nature of our customer base, the health system customer, largely based on the communities they're serving, which is expected. I would take it a step further and say, every health system is going to want to measure efficacy themselves. And really the question they're asking, Greg, in your example, or my CKD example that you built upon, isn't necessarily a process measure, although some of those are really useful. Really the question is, did we stop more CKD? What did it look like last week? And what does it look like this week? And how am I preparing for next week? Unfortunately, that, what I just described, a data-driven approach to measuring efficacy, does not exist in real-time operation in any health system that I'm aware of in the United States because access to the data itself, the expertise it takes, plus the privacy component gets in the way. That measure piece, I think, is, again, 10 years from now when we look back and say, okay, how did we do? And second point, and it's a funny one, we're talking about data management in healthcare, and what's our answer for how we can get the customer base of the world to trust it? Of course, the answer is data.
0: Yeah, you all talked a little bit about the solutions that you are designing and some of the challenges that are still present with interoperability and with data. But I still want to hear from each one of you. What are you most frustrated about when it comes to data in healthcare in the U.S.?
4: The most frustrating thing to us is the ability of enterprises and their vendors and suppliers to still, if not actively block the exchange of data or the availability of data, but to really drag their feet and making it possible to get it into an environment that they don't control themselves.
0: Okay.
1: uh, My biggest frustration with data is really outside the scope of what Lumion is all about. And my frustration is that there's not a single national patient identifier and so I've spent a lot of time uh, working in the U.K. and with the NHS. And within the U.K., they have the greatest population health management approach that is focused on preventative care, health, wellness, and that type of thing. And the National Patient Identifier is the missing link that we are missing here in the United States. I
3: really agree with both points on the data frustration. And just to double click on on both of those points, but especially from where the data is today and making it more available, democratizing it. Provider organizations are also holding tight to their data and also could make it a lot easier and really fuel way more innovation by letting go of the data. And I'm sure all of you have experienced the health systems that say don't compare, don't put other systems data in your model because our population is so unique versus the more data and the more unique data, which is why more global data will only make all of our systems smarter, more intelligent and more insightful and impactful at the point of care. And so it's everybody holding hands, provider, payers also have a lot of data that is very hard to get. That is all very relative to what we're trying to draw conclusions around and create predictions and preventions around in the future. In essence, there's not enough trust and a little bit too much competition. That should not be the driver or the monetization anchor, the data. It should be everything else outside of that. Just the data is a vehicle. And it's and why not fuel as much competition around the world, but especially in the U.S.? by making that data available to everybody. And may the best solutions prevail and save people's lives, extend people's lives and families and reduce costs and reduce clinician burnout and all of the problems that we know about.
2: First of all, it's great to be a part of a panel with all these smart ideas and it's hard to go last. Of course, I agree with all the, the previous ideas on the frustration. I think the, my biggest frustration is the data itself is exploding. There's a ton more. Five years from now, it's exponential. We have an installation with the VA and we have 24 million patients loaded into an MD clone, a Cerner customer, VA, as long as we're all cheerleading for Cerner. 24 million patients today on file in our lake for those 24 million patients, somewhere north of about 10 and a half billion data elements. That's going not to double, not to triple. That is easy going to quintuple over the next five years. Easy. There's so much of it, and it's so poorly constructed because there's so many inputs. That's a function of our system. It's not a function of the providers or even the systems. It is a function that healthcare is part of our lives in almost every moment of our life. That complexity is brutal. We our industry needs us to figure out that complexity somehow,
1: some way.
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: Thanks for your comments, Josh. So, Kathy, my mom passed away from ovarian cancer about 18 years ago, and she was improperly diagnosed. And getting back to the data, she, right, her primary care doc did not recognize in the data that my mom had ovarian cancer. So the next thing that happened was she was in the grocery store, and she had a friend who was an oncology nurse looked at my mom and said, "You have ovarian state, she, you have ovarian cancer. And it turns out she had stage four ovarian cancer. So there was no data other than the best practice that was in the nurse's head as an oncology nurse to be able to recognize my mom fully dressed that she has ovarian cancer. And so getting back to the, my my comment about the um, national patient identifier, in that scenario, and I managed and coordinated my mom's care for the seven years she battled ovarian, and it was a nightmare. And there was all kinds of duplicate testing and procedures and things like that. And so as a nation, as a for us to remain competitive in the free world and as a country, 20% spend of GDP on healthcare is just not sustainable. And so a national patient identifier will help to have all the providers in the loop, and so instead of the provider saying, "Hey, I need to run this test or do this procedure," they would have access to the information about what was done previously and the results and the outcomes.
0: Given that you mentioned a good practice from the NHS with the national identifier, I also want to ask the others, is there anything that you would like to emphasize as a good practice from the other countries that you are present in? MD-Clone is originally from Israel, so maybe, Josh, you can start there, and we'll continue with David.
2: I think the Israeli example, Greg, it has some of the similarities, or some similarities, excuse me, to, to the NHS related to Identifier. I think the, the hope and maybe some best practices that exist elsewhere, and by the way, the U.S. health system has a ton of best practices. There's so many good things about what goes on in the U.S. It's not all a rainstorm. Generally, people still come here. If you can get, if you can get care anywhere in the world, uh, generally people still choose places like MD Anderson and others that were mentioned earlier, which is good. That's a, there's a, that's a feature to our system. We make access really easy. One of the things we don't do is reward innovation here. And I think like in Israel, to your point about other places, there's just way more investment per health system and per human being that's engaged in healthcare in finding new and better ways to do things and a real drive to make it happen. There's just a the culture is what I did yesterday can't be what I do tomorrow. It has to get better. Um, I think we could learn a little of that here in the U.S. I think if we had a a little bit less of an economic focus predicated on kind of fee-for-service or even value-based care delivery and maybe a little more of a push to innovation, and it could be structural, I think that would help our system a bit.
4: When we came out with a whole new cloud-based product about 10 years ago in the U.S., nobody was thinking that way. We got some interest from Asia, and one of the things we discovered there is was a very different model from here. It actually went into a large hospital in Bangkok. And what we discovered was that they really wanted to have a lifetime health record for the patient, which is not something you ever hear about here, but which all of this yes. requires. Okay, And we said, I said, how the heck do you do that? They said, because the physicians are free to go and admit anywhere they want, they're not hospital employees, we have to make it easy for them to provide care. We have to make it really efficient. And one of the ways we do that is giving them incentives to keep their patients at this hospital so that we have a full community health record. They'll have patients that they are 60 years old that they have 58 years of information from in the same place. And we just thought that was amazing. So that forced us to give longitudinal, diagnostically connected health records When we brought that to the United States at Holy Name Hospital in Teaneck, New Jersey, they said, we want to we want to build our own EHR. And I said, you're out of your mind. But they did it and they stood it up in the middle of COVID. But their approach was a community health record. They wanted everybody that connected to the health system to be identified with a personal identity, like a community patient identifier. It was an opt-in thing, and they did it so that person in TNEC could be a school nurse, a guarantor, a patient, a part-time emergency ambulance driver, etc., so that everybody had an identity, everybody had their role. And the data that they saw was longitudinal, but based on the patient they were dealing with and the role that they were filling at that time. It was magical what they were able to do by holding health fairs, getting information from people, and they've rolled it out now, and the reaction has been amazing. The school nurse knows that the social determinants of health for this person also knows their living conditions and also knows their the issues that they're dealing with without having to ask anybody. So it, it could be truly transformative, and a national patient identifier would push that more globally than just one community doing it at a time. We've learned a lot from what we've seen in other countries.
0: Um, perhaps just as the last question, I know that we talked a lot about the challenges with the data in the US. So what are some of the things that are progressing very well or you're optimistic about in terms of the way that data management is developing in healthcare? Not to
1: sound a cliche, I think Kathy used the term responsible AI. And I think about that a lot because when I think of Watson at M D. Anderson failed miserably because it was a black box AI. And so I have a lot of promise and hope for AI in healthcare to be able to in my mom's case identify much earlier on that she was likely to have ovarian cancer. But I think it's gonna take some time and it get gets back to the quality of the data that's driving the AI the algorithms because at the end of the day it's math right it's just working off of data so it's the quality of data the accessibility of data, and the trust in the data are the things that will make a huge difference in moving AI forward
4: One of the things that I'm encouraged about is seeing the shift from the information in a patient record whether it's data whether it's text etc having always been geared towards supporting the financial transaction. Show me why you billed for this surgery. Show me why you did this. Show me why you're asking for this authorization, et cetera, to the realization that to bring down the cost of healthcare, which Greg said is 20% of our economy and growing, to bring down the cost, you actually have to improve the care, improve the outcomes, not justify more transactions, not do duplicate lab tests, not do exploratory surgeries that don't need to be done, but to use it to actually treat the condition of the patient. The focus is turning toward that. And everybody here at this table, other than me, is really involved in using the data to do exactly that. We're like the idiot savants in the room, just trying to do it one patient at a time at the point of care. But if you have the data, you can do all these wonderful things to actually make, improve outcomes and avoid readmissions and do all that. So, I'm encouraged by the fact that the attention is shifting from data to support what I want to do rather than how's the patient doing. I think David's right that he's a
2: savant. I'm not sure about an idiot savant. But I think there's a ton to be hopeful about. Think about how much we've digitized. So when I think about the digital journey in healthcare, I think 20 years ago, we were really trying to get the data in the box. 10 years ago, we tried to interoperate so that when a patient goes from one place to another, maybe their data can flow with them. I don't know if we've, I think we've solved the data in the box problem. I think when patients go from one place to another, we're on our way. There's clearly a need for more care orchestration. But the standards, you mentioned Mickey Tripathi earlier, the standards are in place. There is data flow connecting so that a patient goes from one place to another. Maybe their information can follow. I think the next step is going to be how we use more of that data to do exactly what David was just describing. And I think we're in, this industry does not move in quarterly or even annual increments. It moves in decade-long increments. We're going to see it. There's something out there that's way better that we're all going to be a part of over the next decade. I
3: couldn't agree more. I think if there's only one thing that COVID (laughs) brought us uh, was this instant realization that we need technology immediately in order to solve really critical, urgent problems. And that adoption curve that has traditionally been 7 to 10 years for innovation, I, I love talking to people outside of healthcare and it's, oh, innovation in healthcare is a 7 to 10-year journey, so we don't ever look at things in years or months or things. I do believe that what COVID has reignited in healthcare is that actually technology can do things for us and can progress us faster and that we actually don't have a choice but to use it. And and not everything is an EHR. Never did anybody say, I love my EHR. But where we need to get to is clinicians saying, I can't live without this solution because it's how I save my patients' lives. In product development, there's a term called MVP, which is uh, most viable. We like to call it MLP, most lovable. It's a dream. We're, We're definitely not there. But that's really, to me, the promise and what I see happening in healthcare right now That the adoption and acceptance that technology is here to help, not to hurt or not to provide a nuisance or to weigh you down. It's actually to make things go faster, find the right treatment for the patient first and quickly um, versus trying a bunch of things and by the time you, you do that, it's too late. Or all that information that clinician needed, like that pathology report or the last lab or reading a biomarker report that has hundreds of tiny little data points that can easily get missed and do get missed and that's how the people don't live as long as they could so it's technology that's gonna close that gap
0: you've been listening to faces of digital health a proud member of the health podcast network stay tuned subscribe to the podcast to get new episodes automatically And also check out our newsletter at FODH.substack.com. That's FODH.substack.com and see what we covered in the last month. Stay tuned.